Bem-vindos to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we have a terrific conversation with Gerwin Klein. We talk about his work in the formal verification of the microkernel SEL4, which was done using Isabel at NICTA slash Data61 in Australia. Gerwin has worked in this project since its conception in 2003 in several roles. He was a researcher, a senior researcher, research group leader, you name it, he has done it all. I will just stop talking here and let you guys draw your own conclusions. So let's get into it. All right. Welcome, everyone, to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu. And today we will talk with someone who gave, who have led one of the greatest endeavors in formal methods, the formalization of CSL4, Gerwin Klein. Thanks for being here today, Gerwin. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Did I get your, your surname right? Gerwin Klein? Klein, yeah. That's... Klein. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that's, that's cool. <laughs> well, so... We have met around 2015 when I was studying in Australia, and I got to do an internship at NICTA at the time. One of the first things that I remember when I got there was that I watched a talk you gave, and you were so passionate about theorem proving. So I must ask, how did you discover this passion? What's your story? That is interesting. Um, I wonder what talk that was that I gave there. <laughs> um, I got into theorem proving um, not as an undergrad student, actually, just when I started my PhD. Uh, but I think I discovered the interest for it during my undergrad. So I had multiple interests um, that, uh, that I was pursuing there. So I was really into software engineering and dependable software. So there was one you know, area where you could see some motivation. Um, I was also really into compilers and generating code. Um, I was actually thinking about doing a PhD in um, generating user interfaces from you know, specifications and so on. And I guess that was a little bit of the formal specification angle. And then I listened to a lot of lectures from uh, Tobias, Tobias Nipko, who then later was my uh, PhD supervisor. Um, and there were cool things, like most of them were electives that were not very large. And most of them were in English, which I kind of found cool. Um, and it's not that common at German universities, but there was semantics, lambda calculus, um, term rewriting, things like that. Um, so fairly deep theory, but um, in, in a sense, The, the way Tobias did them, and which I, as a student, didn't uh, realize at all, is, of course, because he was doing theorem proving. Is th they were fairly formal, but formal in a way that made sense and that, um, you know, fit together. And, you know, he did actual proofs on the on the blackboard that you could follow and that were not just, you know, random arguments, but actual formal arguments that fit together. And somehow that I found very fascinating. And then one of his PhD students in the semantics lecture uh, Stefan Berghofer at the time, he actually just went ahead and formalized a bit of the lecture in Isabel. And that's how that was sort of my first contact with theorem proving. And I found that very cool. Um, especially all the, you know, all these proofs that we do um, that could easily be wrong just because I miswrote a letter somewhere on a page. Um, you can check all that. You don't need to get them right. You, you can do that fully 
automatically and fully um, with full assurance, basically. So I found that very appealing. And then, yeah, I started a PhD in the area. And that, from then, I was lost, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as I actually started with, with Isabel and, and proving theorems and so on in, in the theorem prover, um, I found that very addictive and very, um, how should I say, productive and addictive at the same time. It's a very good combination or very dangerous, depending on <laughs> how you want to like, see it. I have a warning in my theorem proving lecture about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like playing video games, right? You just get so sucked in trying to prove prove things and, and, and make things go through that you just Absolutely. can't stop, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's better than the best puzzle games I know. <laughs> and, and once you're done, um, you actually have, you know, usually something useful. And it's really hard too, like very harder than the hardest puzzle games out there. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. I mean, sometimes it, it depends on what you're proving. So if you're right. doing program verification, there's a whole bunch of things that are not actually that hard. Mm -hmm. um, and some proof work I do these days, I, I do some work that um, nobody else in the team wants to do, like cleaning up theories and so on, um, just because it's nice and relaxing. And yeah, <laughs> when it works, it can get very annoying when it doesn't work. But you know, that's right. the case for many things. So then you went ahead and verified a piece of the JVM. Could you tell us more a little, a little more about that? So that was, I was going to say that was my PhD topic, but that's actually not really right. Um, I'm, I don't know if I should tell the story if all the undergrad students are listening, but <laughs> no. I procrastinated a lot. Okay, my my real PhD topic, the one I started with, <laughs> was actually proof carrying code. Um, so that is the idea that um, if you deliver some code to be executed somewhere, you should also deliver proof that the code does what it's supposed to do, and um, you could. Like there's different strengths of what you're going to prove about this. Could just be that it's um, that it doesn't have any undefined behavior, or that it's safe, or that it you know does a particular thing, or finishes in a certain time, or whatever. Um, so there was a whole bunch of work around that time um, that I started my PhD about uh, 1999 um, in that area. And that was my PhD topic, but I was also on a project, um, a big European, um, what's it called? I forgot, European Union something project called Verificard that had like loads of academic teams and uh, an INRIA team and, and so on. And the um, overall goal of that project was to formalize the entire Java language and JVM so that you could write programs about it, about, sorry, write programs in Java, prove things about them, and have all of that assurance go down to the JVM level, basically. Um, the, the idea behind that was that uh, people were trying to do uh, common criteria certification of Java card, for instance, um, so smart card applications. And part of that is you need to formalize them. So to, to push that whole formalization endeavor, there was this huge project. And I was part of that. And my part in it was um, the JVM and mostly the bytecode verifier in the JVM. So the JVM has this, um, it's actually, it's, it's kind of an interesting machine language. So it, it's a machine 
an abstract machine language, a stack language, but you know, machine instructions like, I don't know, load and store and so on. Um, and it has a type system. So each uh, register can have a value of a certain type and so on and so forth. And the bytecode verifier basically checks that the machine program is typed correct. And in a sense that was related to my PhD because um, type, like type, types are a form of proof and type checking is a form of um, proving things. So I procrastinated almost, I don't know, two and a half years on that. Um, wrote a lot of formalizations and actually quite a few papers about it. Um, we formalized um, pretty much the entire JVM. So um, a student before me had done most of the JVM formalization work already, which is, you know, what are all the instructions? What do they, what is the state of the JVM? What does each instruction do? How does a procedure call work or a method invocation and um, all of that. And so I completed that and then I added the type system um, and then the algorithm for the bytecode verifier. So there's a type inference uh, thing going on. Then for Java card, um, there was this idea of, um, I forget what the industry name for it is. Um, we call it lightweight uh, bytecode verification. It's basically where you provide with the program already a certificate of like basically a type annotation. You say for each register what the, what the type is supposed to be. Whereas in uh, a normal JVM invocation, the bytecode verifier is supposed to figure that out by itself. And so if you already have that certificate, then um, you can do the type check in one linear pass and the idea and, and with no more memory than that, or at least not, you know, um, with all with all of one memory uh, over that basically. Whereas the normal bytecode verifier would need more memory and more time. And that wasn't good for smart cards. So the thing has an industry name, which I forgot. I don't know if they even still do that, but um, that was quite interesting. Um, and new at the time and so on. So I had a lot of fun doing all that. And I grew increasingly stressed about my actual PhD because I hadn't done anything on that <laughs> until I at some point had a meeting with Tobias about you know the state of my PhD and so on. And he basically looked at me and said, well, but aren't you just almost finished? I thought, this is your PhD now. <laughs> and that was quite a revelation for me. <laughs> <laughs> it worked and, out yeah, pretty so well. That worked out okay. So sometimes procrastination can be good, but I yeah. don't know if I would recommend that path. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it work? Did it have a, a C implementation and then you also have the proofs in Isabel or everything is done in Isabel and then you can extract something? How did it work? So I was mostly working from the official Java language specification, which is in, mm -hmm. in natural uh, text. Right. Um, there were one or two PhDs before me, like out in the world, not, not in, in our group, that had done formalizations of parts of those type systems on pen and paper. Um, so I used some of those to, to look at how you would you know, formalize these things. Um, but mostly I just wrote um, the type system in Isabel and we were actually like the, the language specification had said which type what is supposed to be, but it didn't specify the algorithm, how you would do that, um, right. how you would infer that. And it didn't um, actually elaborate the type system very much. It just said the bytecode verifier must check that. 
Um, but it turns out there are some areas of those of the type system were actually really complicated. So I remember at some point talking to some guy at a workshop and turns out he was working at IBM and was implementing part of the bytecode verifier for their for their JVM. And he said after my talk, I finally understand what I'm doing here with this instruction. <laughs> it was a jumps up routine instruction. And I think it was actually uh, removed later. I don't know, like it's still there in normal Java versions, but I think it was removed for Java card because it had too many complications. Um, and it was, I mean, it was definitely complex to to get this right, and the, the type system looked interesting. That's that's a good thing about doing formal verification because you really had to sit down and really understand what it was doing, right? The other yes. the other hand, this guy from IBM, he was just you know like trying to get it over with, and and then after you explained things, made more sense for him, right? Yes, I mean <laughs> basically, really cool. if you formalize it, you have no chance. You have to do it properly, yeah. right? I mean, like yeah. the proof will not work when you implement mm -hmm. it. You will do it, and if it works, you well, it works so far, and, and the things yeah. that you tested. But that's it yeah, seems that's like it, it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after that, you you ended up working in, in SCL four. How did how did that transition happen? How did you end up there? So, after my PhD, I well, I stayed a little longer at TU Munich. Um, yeah, working a bit more on, on Java and so on and, and finishing up some of the work. Um, but pretty, almost pretty soon after that, like half a year after that, I uh, went to Australia to NICTA, which was just founded um, in that year, basically. I think it was officially founded in 2002 and I applied beginning 2003 and then I went to Australia in October 2003. And that was, a, like I, I went to NICTA, and partially on purpose on and into something that was just founded in you because I like the idea of the chaos that you <laughs> get. <laughs> um, and which which usually means, well, it can be good or bad, but and, and on the good side, it means um, there's opportunity doing things that other people either think are not worth doing or, or think are impossible to do and, and so on. And the SCL4 verification was one of those. Um, the real idea for it was actually by Gernot, Gernot Heiser. Um, so he was in a different, so Nikta was organized in at the beginning in, in programs. So I was in the formal methods program. Ertos, um, Gernot was leading the Ertos program, which was embedded real time in operating systems. And there was also a logical computation program in, in Canberra that uh, Michael Norwich was in, um, who we worked with quite a bit um, in the SEF4 project. And so it was, Gernot's idea in the sense that um, he wanted like high assurance and a high assurance operating system. And I remember that we had this meeting where um, we were discussing ideas of what, you know, what the formal methods program should be doing. And yeah, so Gernot was asking, well, can you verify an operating system kernel? Um, and we were not quite so sure. <laughs> so I knew that there was um, a project about to start in Germany, the uh, Verisoft project that had uh, had a similar goal, or at least there were discussions about it. I think they started about the same time that we started the real SEL4 project, because the first thing we did was a small pilot project where we tried out, you know, what bits of um, OS code can we um, formalize and, uh, and verify 
we tried out the B tool for um, formalizing a big part of the um, current L4 API. There was a whole bunch of thinking of what should the new kernel look like or should it be a new kernel? There was a whole literature survey session, um, which was probably <laughs> in that pilot project, that was the biggest chunk of work, I think, was the literature survey, which was also very interesting. But yeah. Um, so this was when you, you choose to, you, you guys chose to work with L4, was or was that decision made before? So the Urtos group was um, a group that was working a lot already with L4. Um, okay. So they, they had um, connections to um, Jochen Liedke, who was the, the main author of L4, and like, a um, whole bunch of students were doing microkernel things, and Gernot's been doing microkernels for a long time, basically. So the L4-ish area was, was kind of clear, but that it would be L4 itself, that was not so clear. Um, I mean, we wanted something fast, and um, it had to be a microkernel because uh, the, the code size was important, right? Um, verifying Linux with multi-million lines of code was definitely not in scope. And L4 itself with about, uh, we were thinking about 10,000 lines we can do. Uh, maybe, I mean, there was nothing out there even um, with a thousand lines of C code that, that was formally verified at the C code level. In fact, I didn't know any C programs that were verified at the semantic level that we then uh, built basically, um, at least not in theorem probers. And there has been, there was some model checking and so on in around that time that, that all also was emerging, but not deeper properties like the stuff that we proved. And so there was this one year pilot project and the result of the pilot project was, yeah, we can probably do it. And then we wrote a project proposal and got the project approved and then we just went ahead and did it. And part of the project proposal was that we were gonna write a new kernel so that it was not going to be L4, but um, a new uh, kernel version because L4 had some, um, how should I say, obvious security problems in the sense, for instance, that if you uh, want to send a message to someone, you just need to know that someone's identifier. So you can just, that there's no separation as such. You can just guess um, an address and send uh, a message to them. And that, yeah, we wanted to build a kernel where you can control that kind of stuff. Basically, so mm -hmm. the, the the whole idea of um, adding a capability system to a microkernel um, started there. So what were, what what ended up being the different the main differences between SEL four and L four itself? I think the one main difference is the capability system. So access control in SEL four is very different to L four, and I think the rest is. I mean, it's a, it's a completely new uh, implementation, but the rest is at least inspired. So from the L4 legacy. So the idea that you have um, IPC, which is like a procedure call, basically, um, that you have notifications and signals that the kernel takes care of interrupt delivery and um, acknowledgement and so on. I think those are ideas that already are there in L4. And the idea that it can be fast. Um, and that it needs to be fast to be able to compete with monolithic kernels. Is it in a similar size as L4 or is, is L4 much bigger? 
I think it's roughly the same order of magnitude. I don't know exactly how many lines of code a four are. And for SEL4, by now, it depends on exactly which configuration you choose and so on. So the one we verified in 2009 is about, um, like, if you pick the default ARM configuration, the kernel is now about 50% bigger than it was back then. So a lot has changed over time and things added and so on and so forth. But yeah, one of the explicit goals of the project was that it has to be within 10% performance of the fastest kernel that is around, which was an L4 variant. And we actually, in the in the variant, we managed to be faster. <laughs> so oh, wow. not 10% not slower, but faster than, That's than awesome. the fastest kernel that was there. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I, so, I like that was all the systems people basically. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That that's really cool. So um, I'm trying to understand a little bit because okay, so you you formally verified your your microkernel, which is pretty much your whole OS that you have, but then there is a difference between the the code that it will run and the code that is being verified, right? And how do you glue those together? So I, I imagine that the, the code you're running is actually C code and you're verifying in Isabel. So how do you, how do you, do you do this match in between? Um, so we actually parse the C code that the compiler sees into Isabel and reason directly about that. I mean, there's a whole refinement stack on top of that. So security properties and so on are, are proved about um, a much more abstract specification. Um, but the, the main functional correctness proof that we did back in 2009 was um, the semantics of the C code implements um, correctly the abstract specification of the kernel. Um, and there was in um, a layer in between the, the uh, so we call it the design specification or the executable specification that was initially written in Haskell. So there's a, um, a whole side angle of this, of this project that Sometimes gets confused a bit too much, but um, we, we started the entire project by writing a prototype of the kernel in Haskell. And that was good for um, the formal methods side, um, i.e. me <laughs> and, and, and my team, uh, because that was easy to formalize and the, the concepts make, made sense and we could abstract from that much more nicely um, than trying to um, sort of glean all that from messy C code. Um, and it was close enough um to you know something concrete that um, systems people could work with the whole thing worked because back then haskell was taught in first year and there was a whole bunch of system students who knew haskell and were comfortable just writing it and, and dealing with it and so on um yeah so that's that's how we actually started the uh, the project with a prototype but it it doesn't play a big role in the verification anymore so the, the Haskell kernel still exists and, and we still use it as an intermediate artifact, but there is a, a completely um, untrustworthy um, translation from Haskell, you know, it's just a messy Python script into Isabel. And that gives you an intermediate specification. And so there's actually two proofs. There is a proof from C to that intermediate specification and then from the intermediate specification to the abstract specification. And um, you can put those two theorems together, and then the intermediate specification actually disappears in the final theorem. So if it's correct or not, it doesn't matter for the correctness of the theorem. Um, it just matters for whether you can do the proof or not. Right, right. Like if, if it's wrong, you won't be able to achieve your proof. And It's like an implement, implementation detail for doing the proof. Exactly. 
And there's even things where, like, this is not a proof about the correctness of the Haskell program. Um, because we actually like make things up in the translation sometimes. There, there are commands in Haskell that, that do nothing in Haskell, but that are, for instance, assertions for our proofs or that manipulate the machine state that doesn't exist in Haskell, but does exist in OSPEC and so on. So the, yeah, it's, it's a, by now it's a pure proof artifact, but back then in the beginning, it was um, an actual design prototype for the systems people to figure out how do we do this capability system? How do we do it in a way that is fast? And what should, you know, what, how do user programs interact with the kernel and so on? So, okay, so that's the Haskell side story. Your question was actually about C um, and, and the code that runs and the code that we verify. So we try to be extremely close to the code that runs. So that is one of the big things um, in, in our project that we were basically the first larger uh, verification that just took semantics of C directly and, and verified something about that, basically. So the, yeah, the, the code that runs is the code that is verified. Later in the project, I think uh, roughly about the time you were visiting actually, maybe 2014, maybe before. So um, we did also um, a binary verification pass. So, um, because if you verify the C program, you still trust the compiler to uh, translate it into machine language that correctly runs the semantics of C or what we understand the semantics of C is. And so our binary, binary verification pass um, takes the output of the compiler, so the, the, the binary, um, and gives the semantics to that and compares it to the semantics of the C program of the kernel. And then does a proof that one implements the other. And so that's um it's a slightly different kind of proof that's way more automatic. And there is um there are multiple theorem provers involved. So there's Isabel on the C side, there is Hall 4 on the semantics of um the machine code and extracting verification conditions from that. And then there is a whole bunch, well. Actually, by now two, <laughs> not that many SMT solvers that um, get verification problems that are chosen uh, from those verification conditions. So there, there's a whole bunch of um, heuristics and so on that are trying to figure out, did an optimization happen? Which piece of code in the source should I compare to which piece of code in the uh, binary and how big should these chunks be and so on. So the smaller the chunks, the easier it is to verify, but sometimes if you have optimizations, you need to take bigger chunks and so on. And yeah, it, that's purely heuristic. And, well, it, finding finding is hard. Uh, once once you have satisfied all verification conditions, you, you found the proof. But yeah, so um, with, um, with that additional phase, we're actually verifying the the machine code that runs on the machine. Gotcha. Not just the gotcha. So we're doing that for ARM and for RISC-V, and for ARM for 32-bit and for RISC-V for 64-bit, um, but not for the other architecture. So the, how should I say, our minimum requirement for calling it verified um, or an, an SEL4 version verified is, is to go down to the C and um, yeah, going to the binary is where, where we have the tool, basically. So back then, you're already aiming for different architectures? 
No, back then we were just aiming for him. Um, okay. So in yeah, in the initial project, we picked one farm and did not think much about ever about <laughs> doing other architectures or generosity or any of that. Like we were mostly thinking about: is this actually possible? Are we going to make it or yeah. not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to yeah. I want to make more questions about about that side on how it's growing nowadays because it's I think it's related to to proofcraft nowadays, mm-hmm. right? I want I, I, I'm I'm curious how many people were working at this at the beginning and how long did it take for you to finish this formalization of cl4 sl4 so in total there were 12 people involved but um most of them or many of them not actually full-time so i think the full-time equivalent it was seven um and i need to remember i don't quite remember if that includes the systems team or not the systems team was not very large it was a few people only and yeah so that that's roughly the side so seven full-time equivalent and i think about four years total so the original um project was um you know our proposal said three years we're going to be done and then we needed another extension of another year and then we were still not quite done so there were you know three of us still finishing the last bits of the proof for another few months after that so seven people full-time for pretty much four years that is that is huge that is a lot of work what what did you yeah i I think for formal methods for formal methods i think it's it's hard to have something on that side i i don't know I don't know. I know. I don't know many that many projects, but um, how? What? What were the? I imagine it's really hard to because you you had to 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 think of proof engineering that things that people were not even thinking back then. So you had to kind of create. You guys had to kind of think and create this whole new uh, area of 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 engineering in, in a sense. Um, what were the challenges there, and what did you guys learn and create for this? So we did we did create a whole bunch of things just just on the on the on the size um, maybe a little bit because so yes it is big for an academic group definitely like there are not many academic projects where seven people work on one specific thing for um, for years but then again in terms of projects like I came as a PhD student I came out of this Verificard project and it was at least a factor of 10, maybe 20 bigger. And um, like, I mean, there were multiple whole research groups funded under that, right? Um, so for, it, it wasn't like, I've always had this where um, the people at Nikta said, this is a big project. And I was like, my PhD was in a much bigger project. <laughs> like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. And if you think of um, industry when, when like companies like Google or Apple or, are building products like a hundred million is nothing, right? And this is maybe two million in salaries. So, you know, and it, there's big and there's big. But okay, it was like for proofs, it was a big project. It was one of the biggest proof projects around. Uh, Verisoft was also very big, and we that um, was running concurrently. And we're actually talking quite a bit, um, and we even developed some tools together or used each other's tools and so on. So um, part of the C parser, for instance, the uh, was developed in the Verisoft project, uh, but not for C. That was just more a generic um, imperative language 
uh, verification framework and we specialized it for C and made it um, into a C semantics and so on. And that project um, used a more, they called it C0, but it was more a Pascal like language basically. So they made their own language to verify their stuff in. Anyway, so there was a whole bunch of things. So one of the things that we did fairly early on was um, we were, since since we were 12 people in total, not, not all of us were working on all of the proof at the same time, but there were times where, you know, we had five, six, seven, eight people working in parallel on, um, on this artifact. So we built some of that on purpose into the uh, calculate that we were working with. So we had a refinement, refinement calculus that we built. There's nothing, I mean, I want to say there, there is nothing big new about it, but of course there was enough new about it that you could write a bunch of papers um, that, you know, okay, it works this way and it has these properties and so on, and we can ver verify these things. But how refinement as such is done has been known for quite a while and there have been books written about it and so on. So um, the main thing we did is we made the calculus so that you can split up the proof problem so that different people can work on different parts of the proof problem, problem without having to talk to each other too much. As in, I don't know, if you, if you have a function that calls to other functions, what we wanted to achieve is that the other two, that these two functions can be proved in isolation, as long as um, you, know, you assume the right preconditions, you don't actually have to go back and forth all the time and do it in one file or do it in one, um, in one proof session even and, and all that. So that was pretty successful. Um, looking back, I think we did a bit too much of it. Um, so refinement has this nice property that if you've proved something on the abstract level, you should be able to reuse it on the on the concrete level with you know a modulo um, a refinement relation. And we didn't use that a lot. We we preferred or we did we did too much reproof of properties that we already had on, on an abstract level because mostly it was just easier and um, there was no coordination needed. And you know, it, it was for us probably the faster way to do it the first time. But now looking back in terms of maintenance, um, it introduced a bunch of duplication that we're slowly uh, getting rid of now, basically. And if you have, if you know all the properties that you're gonna prove and know that they're gonna be useful, then, then it is actually faster to just prove them once. <laughs> but we were at the point, we were just trying to figure out what, what do we even need to prove? What are the invariants of this kernel and so on? And uh, we did not know that we had the right invariants until like two days before we finished the entire proof because you can always at the last minute discover, oh, I need to know this property about this global variable. And if it's a global variable, then it's an invariant about the entire program because somebody else could change that at some point. Right? Um, so that was, how should I say, interesting, suspenseful to the very end. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but we managed. So calculating was one thing. Um, there was a whole bunch of just little tools that we implemented in Isabel. So there is this feature in Isabel now that is called find theorems, um, where you can search for theorems by pattern or by name or by whatever, uh, by different criteria. Um, yeah, so one of the uh, people, actually, 
yeah, two, <laughs> me and Ruff, uh, wrote that um, fairly, fairly early on because um, reproving things is expensive and, you know, if you do it too much. And if you have six people working on it, um, they keep reinventing all the same stuff. I, I think we reinvented <laughs> monads at least three times before, you know, somebody <laughs> sat down and made a library and um, it's just, everybody use this now. <laughs> um, yeah, that was actually kind of embarrassing because we wrote a paper about, you know, monads and here's the framework and how does it work? And then um, I met, uh, was David Basin actually <laughs> at the conference where we presented and they said, did you see our paper at ATP about exactly that last year? <laughs> it's like, ah, damn. <laughs> I that one. It was, it, it turned out it was not exactly that. Um, so it was, you know, okay. um, it was good that there were two papers, but we did miss his work and it probably would have helped a bit. I still feel bad about that even 10 years later. <laughs> I hate when that happens. It has yeah, happened so, to me too as well. It's, ugh, it's like, I should, it, I should have seen this. <laughs> <laughs> it happens every now and then. Mm -hmm. Um, so little tools, um, there's also a tool called find consts where you can, it's a bit like, um, it's called Hoogle for Haskell where you, you know, find functions by type and so on and by name. Um, what are there things? One cool tool that we wrote back then that unfortunately is kind of broken and has never really worked again, was called Levity. Um, so that is, that helps with the thing where you, you're, right, you're in a bigger proof and then you figure out, oh, I need this little lemma about lists that has nothing to do with the proof, I, apart from I need it here. Um, but you don't want to go back into the list library and you know add it there because it's going to take you two hours to rebuild everything and be back at the point where you actually need it. So you just put it in the same file next to the lemma that where you needed it, and then it is forgotten. Nobody sees it, and the next person who needs it will probably reprove it again. So Levity was a tool that uh, built on an idea, I think, I think that was actually somebody in the Verisoft project um, where they had the same problem. They did the same things <laughs> that we did. Um, and they wrote a tool called Gravity that figured out uh, automatically where would, where would this lemma fit, into which theory should I put it. Um, so, and it would do that by dependency analysis on, you know, which constants are used and which theorems are used in the proof. Um, but then it would just make that recommendation and sit there and, and that's it. It was just basically saying where, where would it land if I let it fall? So that that's the gravity aspect. And so our tool that we wrote, um, took that dependency analysis, or, um, if the proof engineer had said, you know, fix me, move this to. Uh, it would take the comment into account and then actually take the lemma, remove it from the theories, like cut it out and put it at the end of the other theory, try rerun everything, see if it works. And if yes, commit it to the to version control. And that was really cool for quite a while. We, we still have um, a few theories in, in the proof that are called levity catch, where we wanted the, the move to not go higher than that, basically. So there, there were, stop points. So we didn't, for instance, want to add things automatically to the Isabel distribution to the libraries in there because, um, you know, you would have to clean them up and they, they would have to be a bit nicer and they would have to pass a threshold on is actually needed to go into, into the Isabel distribution itself. But um, in, into our own library, there were no further requirements. So we could just do that a bit automatically. The other bit we did sometimes, but manually. Right? 
So that was a very cool tool, but um, yeah, by now the interaction model in Isabel has changed and it's actually kind of hard to write that tool. We made two attempts over the years, <laughs> but both of them <laughs> failed. <laughs> like one succeeded and then the next Isabel version came out and broke the mechanism again and did ah. everything differently. And so we thought, okay, whatever, let's just, <laughs> um, the dependency analysis is easy enough and um, let's move them manually. With the result that we have a lot of fix me, move this <laughs> uh, comments now in our theories. And every now and again, somebody goes and does move them, but it's not, uh, not as nice anymore. So we wrote a paper about a bunch of these tools in, when was that? Don't quite remember, 2012 maybe in, in Kick'em? It even won a, uh, so um, what is Kick'em? I should really rename, uh, remember the name of the conference. <laughs> it was um, mostly about mathematics and proofs and so on. And um, I think that was our first real proof engineering paper. And then a bit later, we did other cool proof engineering things. So one of the things that is also very important for Proofcraft at the moment, um, but it was important for Nikta and, and um, the research group as well, is if somebody asks you to do a new proof, how long is that going to take? And how much money do I need? How do you know, right? <laughs> so especially for the L4 proof in the beginning, I mean, we estimated it's going to take us three years. We're going to need that many people. And well, we needed a year longer and uh, with that many people. And even that didn't like the additional year almost worked out. It was, you know, a little bit more in the end, but not uh, significant. Um, I mean, okay, that was at the time a very high risk, a research project in the sense that, I mean, there were actually people telling us, what are you doing? This is never, like, this is impossible. Basically, the scale doesn't work, the level of detail doesn't work, and nobody has done this before. Why are you wasting your time? Um, while we were, you know, doing it. Um, <laughs> the, so the question was was estimation. How, how do I figure out um, how much time a proof is gonna take? And um, like one should understand upfront that this is an impossible question to answer, right? There is no, there's not gonna be an algorithm that that is gonna give you a reliable answer for this. Like if you think of, um, I don't know, let's say Fermat's last theorem, <laughs> a few person hours in that, <laughs> a few hundred years. <laughs> um, and it looks tiny and small and very, very innocent. Um, so you're not going to look at a mathematical theorem and say, this is going to take me 3.7 years and two people. Um, that, that's, that's not going to happen. But if you do program verification, um, where most of the things are boring and you have done maybe a similar one before, there should be something that should at least give you a hint, right? Like, is it going to be 10 years or is it going to be one year? And so we um, paired up with the... Um, Empirical Software Engineering Group in uh, Data61. No, it's actually still Nikta at the time. Um, and that was a group that did, well, empirical measurements in, in normal software engineering. So uh, in particular, Ross Jeffrey was one of the people there who um, had done many studies about um, estimation, about how long things take, about productivity, um, you know, 
how many lines of code does a programmer write in, in these circumstances and those circumstances and so on. And so we were looking at the data we had about Alpha Verified and um, the some of the projects that came afterwards. And we're trying to see how much how much we can extract from that. So one of the things we found um, fairly early, in fact, that was in the extension proposal, where you know I had to write a justification why you know why are we not done yet and why do you want more money? <laughs> so I tried to figure out why we misestimated the, uh, that, and um, the reason I came up with, uh, I came up with, and I still think is the correct reason is that we were thinking of the effort of this as linear. Like we did a little bit of verification in the pilot project and we basically thought, okay, the, the kernel is gonna be that much bigger and let's take a fudge factor for safety and um, let's multiply. And that is the wrong thing to do because if you're doing invariant proofs, um, your effort is gonna be quadratic, at least in, in the size of the program. It's not gonna be linear in the size of the program. Um, so that's, in fact, if you if you think about it, that's why modularity is extremely important because modularity allows you to keep invariants small. So if you have to prove an invariant about a module, then you prove it just about the module. And yes, it's quadratic in the size of the module, but if you have another module, you have another invariant about that, it's just gonna be quadratic in the size of that module and not in the size of the sum of the two, which would be much bigger. And in a microkernel, there's not much you can do in terms of modules. Um, like the whole philosophy is that um, if it if it can be taken out of the kernel, it should be taken out of the kernel, should be done at user space. So if, if there is something that is nicely modular that, that you could um, remove from, from the other set, you would probably put it into um, user level. There is, there's a little bit of modularity in how you can organize it and so on, but um, not in the sense that you would have in, I don't know, like Java packages or, or actual modules in, in, a, in a programming language. So that was one thing we found out. And um, later at the, we looked at a bunch of data um, that we uh, got out of, I don't know, adding a new feature, for instance, um, how many lines of proof did that, give us how long um, did it take us. And we did actually get a quadratic. Um, so the quadratic line was the best fit of the ones um, that we tried for that data. And we also used the archive of formal proofs and um, took a few sessions that looked like program verification and they behaved mostly quadratically. Um, so that was one interesting find in that. Um, what else did we do? We looked at um, the relationship between time and lines of proof. So lines of code is a, you know, is in in, in a way is a singularly stupid measure, but <laughs> it actually kind of works. <laughs> like if you if you don't apply it to an individual, if you apply it to a team that is not trying to game it, like if you, I mean, it's very easily gamed, of course. But if you're not trying to game it, um, your effort is going to be roughly proportional to the lines of uh, code that you write. And it's the same for proofs. Um, your effort is going to be roughly, the time you spend on it is going to be roughly proportional um, to the lines of proof you write. Of course, you can game it. And of course, there are people who write way more lines of proof in, in one day than other people. And that might be either because they're actually producing more or because they have a much more verbose style. Um, but 
if we take the average over the project, we found all of that doesn't really matter. Like it, it all goes down in the noise, basically. If you take the entire team and um, look at it over time, and then we we really, that was probably one of the hardest or hardest, most effort intensive things we did for these empirical projects is we looked not at, not just at uh, version control for how much time it took people, but um, we, um, we write progress reports in our group. So, you know, um, you know, this week I did roughly I don't know, bullet points, these things. And so we went through all the progress reports of the entire team for the entire, I don't know, five, six, seven years by the time we, we did that project, um, trying to figure out how long did the team take for this feature or that feature and, you know, annotated these with data points and so on. And so what we found there is that, yes, it's, pretty much straight on proportional. There are, I mean, there's still problems where, you know, the problem is small and 10 lines of proof took you two months because maybe you write a thousand first and then you realized actually it's, you know, much better to do it this other <laughs> yeah. way and then it's small. That's that's like with code. Like none of this means those don't exist. It just means in, in high numbers, those are rare, basically. You're, you're not going to prove a massless theorem every day. We're going to prove boring things <laughs> every day or not boring things, but you know, they might be interesting, um, but not um, in, in, in terms of size, roughly proportional to, to what you write. So the, the, the amount of thinking you do per line of code is basically is, is the same. Um, and some of it, like for some people, um, there was at least a hypothesis that we're actually constrained by the typing speed. Like we could be faster if we could write the same proof in fewer lines of code. So that led us to um, these uh, the, the Eisbach um, method um, language. So that is in in Isabel you can write new proof tactics in in ML, and um, that's always been there, and it's part of the LCF architecture. So it's not soundness critical. You can just go and write a bunch of ML code and um, automate. Um, certain proof steps. Um, we tended not to do that a lot. We have we have written a few, of course, um, but not not small casual ones. Not you know here are uh, here are ten proofs that I did where I found repetition after the third one, and I don't want to retype everything every time. I want to write a short tactic. That sort of casual let's write a short tactic didn't happen because going to the trouble of writing this in ML is kind of, A, you need to know ML, you need to stop your proof, think on a different level, um, write a whole bunch of boilerplate code and so on. So we thought, okay, what, what if there was a method language where you can make a method definition in the same language that I do um, use in, in tactic proofs, basically, if I say, I don't know, simp add something, comma, fast force, comma, auto or whatever in, in, in my proof, why, why can I not say that? as a method definition. And so there was one PhD student, uh, Dan Matichuk, who took that on. And um, that was very successful. And I think he was in the podcast as well, actually. He was, um, yeah. We talked about that, it was very yeah. fun. So that was a very, very cool PhD, I think. Um, and yeah, so we're using that quite a bit now. And I don't know if it has, you know, increased productivity in huge amounts, but I think it has increased productivity um, in the sense that 
at least it feels better. <laughs> <laughs> like it's very frustrating when you're when you are introducing repetition yourself, right? A, a lot of engineering is um, like in in software engineering as as well as proof engineering is getting is removing duplication, and it's good for multiple. Um, dimensions basically duplication is bad for maintenance and like if something changes now you have to change it five times um, if you've removed the duplication you only change it once if um, it's good for performance usually because if you improve it once you improve it everywhere it's um, what's the other dimension I was thinking of I just said it. <laughs> it's I mean basically it comes all down to you can spend your effort once and you can spend more effort on that one time than you would do if you just repeated it everywhere and it's much more agile as well so changing it once will you know is, is easy changing it 10 times you really think about doing that like there's still i don't know renaming a theorem is an expensive operation um because just um search and replace well, sometimes it works, and you can you can usually you can figure that out, but there is no um, rename theorem refactor in 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 Isabel JEdit or something like that, and it would be hard to do because the scope is you'd have to make sure that everything where you want to rename it is in scope. Um, but if it's just a string, then well, if the name is the same as the name of a constant or as a type or whatever, then you can't just go search and replace. You have to um, do this a little bit more manually. You can, I mean, lemma names are not so bad because um, you can usually figure out the context fairly easily. Easily renaming a constant can be super annoying. So is, there's this one thing where you know, at one point, what was that? Uh, we had so-called we had synchronous and asynchronous IPC, and at one point the systems team was specifically Gernot was really was getting really annoyed with the name uh, async IPC because it's not really an IPC. It's just um, a notification. So I wanted to rename this to notification. It's renamed everywhere in the code now. And that probably took at least a, a week of work doing that in the proof because you know somebody needs to go through all it and figure out which bits are um, the name of the in the code and which bits are in lemmas and, and so on. Um, and I think there are still mentions of <laughs> async endpoint and async something in, in the proof base somewhere <laughs> because they're hard to find and if you find them you can't just do it locally it's a global operation and then you know running the proof of one architecture from start to finish is about five to six hours on a fast machine so you don't do that just casually you just you know you do it when it's really worth it mm -hmm. so some of these you know technology could help it but you really have so to think very well what you're going to name your things because they're very expensive to change later. <laughs> exactly. Naming naming discussions are heated sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean there it's it's painful when you when when you haven't done it in the beginning. So like in in the in the first project we had none of these concerns, right? Um, when we when we wrote the library for instance for for monads, we just we just wrote what we needed at the time and we let it grow organically. We, we tried a little bit, you know, the basic operations, they all have their weakest precondition lemmas and, and what's on. Um, but if somebody needed a new monitor operation, they just added it. Um, there was no big discussion about what it should be called or 
wood scope or whatever. Uh, we just did all that. And some of that is still there <laughs> because it's so hard to change. Now, when we add something, we're a lot more careful and a lot more thought goes into the seemingly trivial things. And I think that's that's really just a shift between research and trying trying to do something for the first time and, and engineering where you know you're going to live with this for another 10 years and your decisions now are going to hurt you later. <laughs> like back in the beginning, like, I mean, we had proof engineering uh, problems like um, levity and so on, but we did not think about, okay, this, the next 15 years are going to also be about this, right? <laughs> we were just trying to achieve it once. <laughs> and then, you didn't even know if you could achieve it once, right? Then. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so there were also other projects that kind of gravitated around SEL4. I remember there was the file system project, uh, Cogent. Mm -hmm. uh, what what were the projects happening there and what what was being what did you guys were trying to achieve then so i think cogent and, and file system verification was probably the biggest other verification project that we had around we had um like doing icebox for instance was a separate project as such and um, all the proof engineering um the empirical stuff was a separate project we, what else did we do? So a lot of things were um, around SEL4. So for instance, the, the binary verification, also a separate project. The, um, we did proofs about access control. Binary verification of what, sorry? Um, of, um, so the, the idea was binary verification of um, SEL4. Um, so the, it's really translation validation of the compiler. So oh, that last step gotcha. between C and um, executable. Um, so that was a PhD thesis, basically. Um, yeah. And, and, and in later stages, then um, more engineering and more people on it. But the, the initial project was a PhD thesis by Tom Sewell, who is now at Cambridge, I think. Yes. Um, other projects, access control, information flow, um, using SEL4 as a separation kernel, doing hypervising with SEL4. Those were all uh, projects in, in that area. Oh, we also had um, a little um, real-time OS called Ekronos um, that we did verification work on. That was a, the verification there was a little bit different to SEL4 because we were, on the one hand, interested in a extremely preemptible um, Kernel. So SEL4 switches off interrupts when it starts and switches them back on when it finishes. So it's not preemptible in the kernel. It just user level is preemptible. Um, and Ekronos was something for small microcontrollers where you know you have a few cycles to um, respond to an interrupt and so on. So you can't afford to uh, switch off interrupts when you're in the kernel and then switch them back on. You have to handle it immediately, basically. So we were interested in that concurrency aspect. And then we also wanted to verify absence of undefined behavior. And for absence of undefined behavior, we went with uh, model checking with CBMC back in the day, and that worked pretty nicely. Um, it was also because the code was written extremely, um, to be extremely static, basically. There were no loops over dynamic data or anything like that. Like all data structures had a, a pre-configured length and the only four loops were over that. There was one loop that was potentially non-terminating where we told the model checker to you know, shut up and not care about it. 
which is the typical um, spin lock thing where you wait for the other process to do something. Um, and well, you don't know that that loop is going to terminate. You only know. Well, if you know both processes are doing something, you do know. But even then, it's actually very hard to prove because um, you the, the, the semantics of the processor is not necessarily that you see the effect immediately. You will see it at some point later. And in reality, that's maybe two, three cycles later. But um, in, a, in a formal semantics, how do you how do you phrase that? Um, usually, you would say will arrive eventually, and that means not necessarily. Well, actually, it does mean termination. Well, we just hand waved that basically. We said that informally. <laughs> like if if the bit is going to be set eventually, then that means this loop will terminate eventually. But yeah. Um, so that's the kind of verification we did there. It was a bit different to SEL4, um, but that was a fun project. Yeah, I think that's roughly about it. Um, and what came out of, um, oh no, I, there's a whole bunch more that we did later, um, the whole KML um, area. So KML is a project that is not uh, not from Nikto or, or Data61. It's um, I guess at Magnus Marines group. Um, so in in Sweden. So his 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 work is all the um, in in Hall four is all the reasoning about binary code stuff that we used for binary verification. And so that's that's how that collaboration started. And um, another big project that he had is um, this language KML with. Um, basically an ML dialect with a fully verified compiler. And so we are, we're looking at using that for user code on top of SEL4. Um, because one of the more, you know, bigger research questions was, okay, um, we verified SEL4, how do we get more verification to, to bigger things? We can't, you know, manually verify everything all the time and see that that's not um, productive enough. So uh, if you could, write stuff in ML, um, right, verifying things about ML programs is much easier than verifying things about C programs. So we looked into using KML. We actually use it for the system initializer on top of SEL4. So when SEL4 boots, it hands off um, to a user level init task, basically. Like, like in Linux, there is an init uh, boot task. And that init task has authority to everything. It has all you know, authority to all the hardware resources that are there, all the interrupts, all the memory, all everything that's there. And its job is usually to load and boot up all the other components in the system, give them only limited authority just to the things they need, and then remove its own authority and go to sleep. And so that is a program, it's a user level program that we verified. Um, we verified it only on the on the model level in Isabel. So we, we wrote down what it should do in Isabel, and then uh, we implemented in, it in C. But we didn't prove the connection like we did in SEL4. And then at a later point, we looked at um, from the Isabel definition, can we get automatically a KML definition of that initializer? And um, I think we ended up doing it a little bit differently. Um, doing a more manual KML implementation and then an automatic proof that it does the same thing that, that the Isabel formalization does. But the effect is the same in the end, that we have, have a uh, verified system initializer kind of thing. 
The downside with the verified initializer is it doesn't have as many features as the you know, C initializer. So people still keep using the C initializer. But yeah. <laughs> That's always a problem. <laughs> but then the C initializer is not fully verified, just the case exactly. one. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So the idea is if, you, um, if you're just casually developing on SEL4, you probably want to use the C initializer because it's um, quick and easy to do and, and um, to use. And then if you want a high assurance system, you replace it with the KQML initializer. And depending on what kind of system it is, it, you might still need to extend it with some features that, that you need, um, which is, that's one of the things Proofgraph can do, for instance. Um, in, in general, if there's something with SEL4 that needs further proofs, um, we would be one of the people who you can go to and say, you know, do this for me for money and we will usually do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have probably asked this a little earlier, but um, what exactly does it mean that the CEL4 was, was formally verified? What is, what is the main theorem and what are the assumptions behind it? Okay. Um, there are no many more theorems than there were back then. So I'll go functional correctness first. So that was the theorem in 2009 and still the main central theorem that we um that we prove and that that is sort of the threshold for calling a a version or feature combination of seo4 verified um okay what does it mean um the the theorem is that um the semantics of the c code correctly implements the abstract specification of seo4 and the abstract specification is you can think of it as a monadic functional program written in isabel about abstract data structures. So it has, you know, it uses sets and Isabel lists and, and so on for, for things, but um, it's also talks about the binary interface of the kernel. So it, it describes, you know, if I make a syscall um, to SEL4, then I'm, you know, handing parameters in these registers. And if I put these values in and put these other values in these memory locations, SEL4 will respond um, in that register with that number and will change its internal uh, authority state and, and so on in this way. And that's roughly what that specification says. So the theorem is just the kernel does that. The, the C code, the semantics of the C code does that and does nothing else. So that's actually the more important part of you. Like what people usually want to hear is it does that, but what's more important is it does nothing else than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for, for security and safety, you you usually want, there's no other behavior. It doesn't do any random stuff. And also, you know, sparks memory all over, the, um, I don't know, devices or something. So that is part of that theorem. What that implies is um, for the C code is that there's no undefined behavior because undefined behavior means you don't know what the machine is gonna do. And we always do know. Um, there are no things like null pointer dereference and, and all the and buffer overflows and, and all the all the things that basically are undefined behavior in the end. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what the theorem says. Um, assumptions. Um, let me think a bit. So the the main assumption is from from which the rest basically derives itself is that the machine correctly implements the semantics of the C code that we give it. And so the question is, wh where does that, what does that mean? So for instance, this means that 
um, there's there are a bunch of assembly instructions in the kernel. So there's inline assembly and like the trap code that um, does actually enter the kernel and so on. Uh, those are assembly instructions. And we have a formal model of what they do, but we have no proof um, that those assembly instructions actually you know, do what, what we model because they're not really part of the C semantics as such. So those are a fairly big assumption. Um, well, fairly big compared to non-verified code. It's super tiny. It's like almost nothing. And you can look at it manually and, and actually read the you know 10 lines or whatever um, of assembly for each of the bits. Um, what others? Uh, caches and TLB, they're also behind this so-called machine interface for us. Um, we have actually had a, a PhD thesis about how to model the TLB and um, also a bit on how you would integrate that into the SL4 proof, but we haven't done that yet. Like it's not integrated into the big proofs, but we, we do know how to formalize it basically. Um, caches we have not, and there's actually, you know, every now and then if there's a new platform and people port it by just copying and pasting code, um, there, there can be caching bugs in the sense that this can be correctness relevant. It's usually not correctness relevant for the kernel, like it will not kill itself basically or, or run into undefined behavior, but it might do things, it might lead to things that you don't want for the user. So a typical caching bug, bug could be that um, a user can read things that they're not supposed to read because they're not um, flushed from the cache, even though you thought you flushed the cache, um, stuff like that. Um, so that is an assumption you actually have to you know, um, validate if you wanna do a high assurance system. There's a whole bunch of platforms for which they are validated, but you know, new platforms come in all the time. Um, what else? TLB caches, machine code. And well, okay, the big assumption that the uh, compiler implements the C semantics in, in the way that we think it should, um, that, is, um, that is there for the platforms where we don't do binary uh, validation, basically. Um, so if where we do do binary validation, the assumption is that um, the machine executes the machine code according to the semantics that um, is given. And if that, that's also not necessarily given at all points. So um, things like Meltdown, for instance, the um, uh, where, how did that go again? It's been a while. <laughs> it's basically where um, you could read and I think also write to memory um, that you don't have access to, um, where the page table would say you don't have access to via speculative execution. And I think it was mostly just reading, but I might be wrong. So you will get an exception from the machine eventually, but you will have read um, the memory and you will have gotten the information. And well, our machine semantics doesn't have anything like that. It says, you know, you will read what you will what you're allowed to read and you will not get access to the things you're not allowed to get access to according to the page tables. Um, so if your machine doesn't behave that way, then well, the formal model doesn't quite predict what the, um, what the machine does. Um, all these, you know, spectra meltdown and so on, they're, they're important for information flow. They're not so important for um, the kernel functioning correctly. Um, well, depends on what you mean by correctly. So the behavior of the kernel is right, um, but you might still, be able to infer information that you're not supposed to infer. So it's, I guess it's mostly the information flow theorem that 
these are a threat to. But they're there. And one that I like to point to is that a lot of these assumptions are, they sound formal and formalistic and so on, but they can be very real in, in the sense that um, you need to operate the equipment in the right operating environment. <laughs> like if you have a mobile phone with, let's say, I don't know, your verified kernel and so on, and you um, overheat it and put it under radiation, the theorem is off. <laughs> like <laughs> the predictions of the theorem will not hold because the hardware does not satisfy the, the hardware assumptions anymore. And there's nothing you can do with proofs about this, right? You, when you, there may be countermeasures, but not these are not proof countermeasures. Or if you drop your phone into a volcano, it is not going to, you know, <laughs> satisfy the refinement theorem. <laughs> it seems to me, it seems to me that a lot of the assumptions that you guys had to work with has to do with, you know, how C works and how it can be a little bit undefined sometimes. Um, do you think? Do you think that yeah. if? Do you think if if you had a a more well defined language, you know, like with a more well defined semantics? Such as I don't know, maybe Rust. Do you think it would be a, would have better verification, uh, or would be easier to make your verification? So I really like Rust, but I don't think so. <laughs> so the thing is, um, why 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 I said uh, when 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 you said more defined language and so on, we. <sighs> <laughs> to, to put it um, provocatively, we don't really care about the C standard at all. <laughs> like, um, I mean, yes, we do care a little bit because, I mean, the C standard tends to be what the compilers do. But what we actually care about is what the compiler does. And um, so if, you know, we, we use two compilers, GCC and Clang, and from time to time, we do actually use ComCert. Um, but it's, it's not in the regression test at the moment. And, um, it, you know, as usual, when you don't test something for a few years, it'll stop working. But um, it was for a while, and it works just fine. It's just GCC and can produce faster code, and with the binary verification that we have, we have verified faster code. Um, the the things that are undefined behavior in C are things that we need to avoid, um, and we do know fairly precisely what we want to avoid, and we we know that pretty much um, simply by over approximation. Um, as in, we, we demand stronger things from C programmers than what the C standard would um, demand. In, in that sense, our subset of C is a more defined language already. Um, it is a bit funny because our subset of C does have things that according to the standard, strictly speaking, are absolutely undefined behavior. Um, because you can't implement uh, malloc in C without without undefined behavior, because the standard says your memory has to come out of malloc. <laughs> so if you don't have malloc yet and you have to implement it, <laughs> you got to do something. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and we have to implement um, malloc for the kernel and then later malloc for the user and so on and so forth. Um, so we have to do some things that are strictly speaking not okay, but. Um, but, but we keep them to a minimum, and we know that the compiler does the right thing for them because we look at the binary. Um, yeah, and and that's that's pretty much it. Compared to all the normal stuff that is undefined behavior, we definitely exclude that in the parser already. Like even like for instance, um, you have this thing in C where the um, evaluation order in expressions is 
it's not undefined, it's implementation defined. So it's up to the compiler. If I have f of a plus f plus g of b, for instance, it could first evaluate g and then f, or first f and then g. And if they have no global side effects, it doesn't matter. But if they do um, and they interact with each other, then it does, maybe. And so we just forbid that. And the parser will check it. It will try to prove that they have no side effects. And if it, that's successful, it's fine. And if it doesn't, it'll complain and say, make this two separate expressions. And then you know you have a defined execution one. And normal C programmers would probably hate us, but um, <laughs> that's. Um, that's what we demand, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So you 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 deal with that. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are also features like um, taking the address of a stack variable, for instance, that we don't allow. That's not even. That's not implementation defined or anything. That's just annoying to formalize. Um, and it's something we're thinking about dropping. Because working around that can be, a bit, a bit annoying. In in, in SEL four, it was not too big of a deal, but if you want to do user-level verification, then then yes. And there are a bunch of groups that are using our tools for doing user-level verification, I think. Yeah, I think it is, well, hmm. yes, it is public that Apple does firmware verification and, and user-level code verification, and um, they're using some of our tools for that. So we're you know talking to them from time to time and what they want to need. and. They're actually um, basically um, contributing some of their um, code and so on sometimes um, to add more features to to that verification. But so I think what my, what my point is that um, is that that C subset is can be annoying, but it is um, on a level where it's realistic, where you can write real code with it. Gotcha. Yeah. And yeah. You can make it less annoying, which is where the Apple direction is going, I think. Cool. Because, yeah. Okay, so let's put aside a little bit the, the technicalities a little bit. And I would like to understand a little more about the organization side of, behind SEL4 and all everything that you have been working on. You mentioned that you finished your PhD and you went worked on Nikta and then it became Data 621 at the time. So, uh, what is Nikta? Where does the money come from? What What is the organization behind the interest in this sort of work? Okay, so Nikta unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but at the time it existed, it was um, a national research institute in Australia. So, um, it had a pretty good level of, of base funding, basically, where you know it, it's just a funded research institute can hire people and, and do its own research projects. It had a mandate to um, work in certain areas and um, it got reviewed every year and so on and so forth. So it couldn't just do whatever it wanted. It had to do things that um, were in the national interest and that the sort of um, I forget how they're called. They're, they're sort of national research priorities that, that come down from, um, I think, the government, basically. I'm, I'm trying to remember who exactly is involved in, in setting them, but I think that is mostly the government. And different parts of government um, play into that. But cybersecurity was, has been one for a very long time, um, for instance. Um, so Nikta 
has base level funding and then um, third party funding, like other research institutes as well, like grants and, and so on. It was actually fairly difficult to get grants in Australia because we were not eligible to get funding from the typical Australian grant institutions like the ARC that universities would get funding for. Because the reasoning was because NICTA is already getting um, government funding. Um, so it shouldn't get, again, it, it shouldn't compete with universities for the rest of the government funding. It should get other funding. <laughs> so government funding from Australia was hard for us, but um, we were fairly successful with um, like DARPA funding, for instance, in, in the US and, and so on. <laughs> That's funny because you're getting money from the US, but not from Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been, it's always been kind of funny like that. Um, <laughs> we also worked a whole bunch with uh, the US Air Force and uh, US Army think also, yeah, and with some other uh, US companies. So in fact, most of our funding was from the US, the, the third party funding. Um, it was at some point bigger than the base funding that we had, but we always had a pretty good level of base funding. So SEO 4 itself, the first project was entirely base funding. That was mostly, and, and internally how that works is, um, well, you write a project proposal to, you know, um, for X many people of in, in the research institute to, to work on that project or to hire new ones. And you get a budget for that if it is approved. The approval process was um, I guess rigorous is the right word. <laughs> it's, it wasn't easy to, to get um, um, <laughs> to, to get uh, project running. Um, easier in the in the very beginning and then increasingly more bureaucratic and then in fact towards towards the time where they started to shut Nikta down we had a really good process going actually <laughs> um, but that's politics um, yeah so that, that's how um, the initial level of funding were um, and, and a lot of that is how how groups so there were three main groups programs involved in, in Nikta and um, a lot of that depends on how much of their base funding do they want to contribute to a program like that right? or to a project like that. So we found enough people who were interested in that and thought it was possible and a good idea to do. And that was one of the big steps. And then writing a good proposal and getting it funded was the was the other one. So if I understand, um, what about your relationship with UNSW? In order for you to be hired by NICTA, you also have to be a professor there? How did that work? You do not have to be. Um, in fact, it's kind of the other way around. If, you're, um, if you were a NICTA researcher, it, there was usually the option, um, if you qualify and so on, um, to also become a UNSW conjoint lecturer or professor or whatever, depending on your experience and rank and so on. Um, and so that, that's how it worked for me and most of the full-time researchers that were in NICTA. Um, but there were also people that worked just at UNSW and then collaborated with NICTA. And um, it could be just collaboration and there were just, you know, UNSW people who collaborated. Um, there were a whole bunch of them actually in the uh, SEL4 project as well. Um, it could also be that part of their salary is actually paid by NICTA and for that maybe they get teaching relief and so on. Um, there were yeah a whole bunch of constructs. Um, that does not happen so much anymore. Well, NICTA is not there anymore. 
um, it got so at, at some point the government, um, specifically Tony Abbott, <laughs> if you want to know the prime minister of shame, um, decided NICTA didn't uh, generate enough uh, money to support itself and still needs government funding and that that's not what they wanted. Um, so they basically said they wanted to shut it down. And then um, there were a whole bunch of um, ideas of, you know, what, what should we do? Should we just actually just shut it down and, and be done with it? Or um, what other options are there? And one of the options was to merge with uh, CSIRO, which is um, the main applied research organization in, in Australia. And it's very broad. It does everything from astronomy and marine biology to, I don't know, agriculture and what else? Um, it, it also does some computer science. Um, and so that is how Data61 was founded. Um, so the, the computer science part of CSIRO uh, merged with NICTA and that is Data61. And Data61 basically still was just the department of CSIRO. It's not, um, not its own organization as such. It had a CEO for a while. I think by now they're not called CEO anymore. They're directors and it's, it's really just a part of CSIRO. Um, yeah. That, that was that data 61 as such still exists. I don't think there is much of much NICTA people left over in there. Um, they had a fair bit of turnover after the merge and so on. It's, it is very different working in a, you know, small research organization um, that has some government funding compared to an actual government organization <laughs> um, that is very big and does not do computer science as its main thing. Like if you, you know, if you have to fight against the perception that uh, computers are there to, you know, type texts or do statistics, um, then <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not the greatest um, environment for doing computer science research. Um, not, in, not that there isn't any, it's just, it's, um, it's different if you have a dedicated organization for it. Um, and then at some point, uh, Data61 decided that the research direction for computer science now is AI and everything that's not AI is basically will be shut down. And oh. which is kind of, so we were part of that. Um, the, the um, by the time we were called the Trustworthy Systems Group, um, the the funny thing is that of course formal methods has always been part of AI. Like it's one of the founding things of AI. But they they mean the machine learning AI. They didn't mean the formal methods AI. And fine. So in in the end, I actually I'm kind of very happy with that. Um, but it was a very turbulent time for a while because like I mean like with the uh, like with Nikta, the question was okay, what what are the options? What are we going to do? And um, we basically kept the Trustworthy Systems Group alive by moving most of it to UNSW. And there is a Trustworthy Systems Group at UNSW right now. There was a very, um, how should I say, visionary head of school back then who just said, I'm going to fund the entire group for half a year um, until you can find external funding. And by now, so Gernot is leading that group. Uh, and by now he has like, found way enough funding, he's like expanding again, basically. Um, I mean, that was never um, one of our problems. We, we always had 
fairly large amount of external funding. I think we were one of the best externally funded groups in, in the SEC one. So purely political, we want to do AI kind of decision, not yeah, not a performance, or at least as far as we can tell, <laughs> uh, kind of decision. Um, and um, at roughly the same time, actually, before the whole, you know, we're going to shut down uh, OS and, and formal methods research, um, me and a bunch of colleagues had started to think about um, doing a company in that space, because one of the things we were seeing was that more and more um, commercial companies are getting into formal verification, need formal verification services, people want to use SEO for but I don't know, let's say it's verified for this and that ARM platform, but they want to run a different ARM platform. Um, as a research institute, it's yes, you can like make that contract and get external funding for it, but it's, it's just going to distract you from what you actually want to do, which is research, right? Um, so we founded that company to basically serve that area. So if some, somebody um, needs formal verification services around SEO for it, that, that is exactly what Procraft does. We also do like consulting and training around um, that area where, you know, in, in the extreme case, it could be, I want to build up my own verification group and verify stuff, and we could help you with that. I would still recommend hiring a, you know, a, at least one formal verification person from that, that already knows um, and is an expert in the area if you want to start with that, but we can still help um, in expanding that and figuring out, you know, what to do first and, and so on. Um, when was it founded? Uh, 2021. Okay. So uh, in, in the actual founding date is April um, 2021, but like May 1st is basically what, you know, what we have on our website. <laughs> um, it's it's um so we founded it immediately after that shutdown thing. So when that shutdown, like we were thinking about it before, but we were actually going to hold off for another year or so to you know make a smoother transition for the team because um, we didn't want to uh, damage the research side of it. And that's that's now all on Data sixty one. They damaged the research side of it. <laughs> um, because I mean, what what happens in these situations, right? I mean. The, the people working in our group, they were extremely highly employable um, in the sense that some of them had a new job um, three days after the news was out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like I had some some people call me like from bigger industry, like, I don't know, three months later and asking, hey, you know, we heard that, you know, the research group closed down and do, are there any people who would be interested? And it's like, no, they're all long gone. <laughs> <laughs> you were too late. <laughs> like, <laughs> way too late. <laughs> and yeah. And then to all kinds of places too. I don't know. Some some work for Apple now, Microsoft and uh, Google. Some work for small startups. Some uh, work for, I don't know, automotive and, and so on. So in a way, it's kind of cool because now we know people everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it would have been cooler to keep them together and, and push SEL4 a bit more strongly. So in 2021, development around SEL4 was a bit slow, but it's picked up quite a bit again. We also had the SEL4 Foundation just started at around that point, and that has also been a very good um, thing in in the sense that uh, companies and so on that are interested in that can join the foundation can. Uh, pitch in some funding um, to, you know, for the ongoing maintenance and support and so on of SEO4. 
So that actually all worked out pretty nice, um, I would say. So now there is the research group that still does research around it. There is the company for the verification part. There's a whole bunch of companies that are doing systemy things around SL4. Um, like, I don't know, Cry10, for instance, is, is one that is building an operating system around SL4. Um, and there is the SEL4 Foundation that is has sort of the governance of the entire project. So it determines where SEL4 is going and what um, what procedures there are. How do you, you know what do you need to satisfy to accept a patch and stuff like that? Um, where there's two bodies. One is the technical steering committee that I'm the chair of. Um, that does all the technical bit. And then there is the, the board of the foundation that does the financial bit that says, you know, what, what do you want to spend money on? And they're fairly separate in the sense that um, the, the technical steering committee can determines the technical direction and content without, there's no company influence. Like if a company pitches in a lot of money, they get a seat on the board, but they don't automatically get a, seat on the technical steering committee. That, that's by, you know, how much experience do you have with SEO4 and so on. So that's worked out pretty well so far. So in the end, I'm actually kind of really happy that that happened. At the time, I was not so happy. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Sometimes it's you make bad <laughs> things comes for the best in the end and yeah, takes exactly. you to very good places. So who are your main clients for Proofcraft right now? So... I can't talk about all of them, but um, so um, we do a lot of work for the SEL4 Foundation. So some of the um, money that the board can allocate, for instance, goes to Proofcraft for, um, I don't know, a funny one that you might not think is, for instance, doing all the continuous integration test infrastructure. That is something I did learn like uh, by Proofcraft for, um, for the foundation, but also um, proof projects, um, things that are not likely to get big funding from, from other areas, um, the foundation will fund, like, I don't know, making the proofs better or faster in some aspect or adding a feature that, you know, will benefit everybody, but nobody wants to pay for and things like that. <laughs> so that's, that's one direction. Um, another are, um, I think I, the biggest one actually are research funding, uh, organizations like, uh, when, so we currently have a project with NCSC in the UK, so then um, Cybersecurity Center in, in the UK was part of um, GCHQ. Um, turns out they've been interested in SEL4 for a very long time, um, and they pitched in with quite a bit of funding for um, a whole bunch of projects. It's the So we're doing that mostly together with UNSW, and that is a more researchy uh, kind of work. Um, that's kind of actually it's the work we like best. <laughs> it's it's research. It's um, it's good for SEL4, and um, it's you know it's funded and it's for somebody who actually wants it. It's not just you know research funding because hey, it sounds like a good idea, but it's research <laughs> funding because you know we want this feature. It's gonna um, help us. I don't know, do something, build something, or well, I don't know exactly what NCSE wants to do with it, but. Um, <laughs> It's, it must be it a really good useful. feeling. It yeah. must be a really good feeling to look back and be in that position that you didn't even know if if this project would, was going anywhere. And nowadays, people are actually using it and paying a lot of money 
to to move it forward, right? Yeah, that is that is pretty cool. And yeah, that's nice. So, are you still teaching at UNSW? Yes, yes. So I still have my uh, conjoint professor position. Um, it's the the conjoint is actually kind of a strange construct because it is so it's a NICTA artifact. It's usually oh, right. um, a, a title <laughs> that uh, comes only with um, in, in the in medicine with teaching hospitals and and stuff like that. So that you have that in, in computer science is a bit of an anom anomaly anyway. So <laughs> I'm not sure what will happen when that runs out. Probably it'll turn into a normal adjunct professor or something like that. But I still teach. Um, I'm planning to keep that up. Um, there aren't that many theorem proving courses around in the world. And yeah, it's it's usually it's fun to teach. And I don't teach it uh, alone. So We're actually right now with four lecturers, which means there's not oh, wow. a lot of effort for each of us. Um, again, and everybody has their section of the lecture that they've done before, so it's it's um, not a huge time commitment compared to um, you know the fun you have. Yeah. How I mean, big? How big? How big are the classes usually? It depends. Um, in in a very small year, it could be just I don't know five six. In a big year, it could be I don't know thirty five. Enrollment at the beginning is usually higher, like could be 50 or 60, but um, it, some of these never turn up. I think that's just over committing for, um, um, for being afraid of not getting a place. <laughs> so some, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's um, some years when there are really loads of students, um, there are courses that um, are just full and you can't take. And um, yeah, and then people apply for more so that they can have a fallback, basically. Is it part of their main track or is it? Um... Um, it's an elective, so you, you elective. don't have to check it. Yeah. So yeah, it, was, it must be. Yeah. You go. You're going to say? Um, it, no, it's, I... it's, it's fun teaching. It's um, we, we had an accident once where um, the prerequisites uh, were not in sync. So that's probably, I don't know, probably 10 years back or so, where the university introduced a new degree, or was it Masters in Information Technology, MIT. And suddenly I had MIT students in my course and I was like, what is this? <laughs> Surely they're not MIT students. <laughs> and since it's a master's program, master's in Australia is more a, you know, I've, I've had, I have a degree in a different area and I want to learn about computer science. So what I had were was, for instance, accounting students who um, could take that course um, because there were no no prerequisites that would uh, preclude that. And I don't and know. And they never programmed their lives. And they probably had programmed, but they had never seen logic or functional programming or right. any of these things before. And I am very proud that I managed to pass almost all of them. So <laughs> nice. That was pretty good. I mean, they're also obviously interested. I mean, you can drop the course um, at any time in the first few weeks without penalty. So it's those that stayed were stayed were interested or needed it, needed the credit. I don't know. Um, how how how's yeah. the what usually do you teach them, and how are the, the the do they do they have to do any projects? Um, they have to do three assignments and an exam, and the assignments are. Um, multi-week so they're they're little projects basically um the first one is not 
it's not so much a project, it's just a bunch of proofs and a bit of lambda calculus and, and so on. And sort of what I call the assembly level of proofs where you apply single rules and say, I don't know, all introduction and conjunction elimination and, and so on, just to learn about what the logic is like and um, how things work under the hood. Um, the second one is usually about functional programming and recursive definitions and induction and data types. So there you can do little projects already. Like, I don't know, implement um, a, um, an interval list, for instance. So implement a, a set with a, with a list of intervals instead of just enumerating everything and then have an add and a remove operation and prove theorems that they're correct and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, things like that, or about trees or about, I don't know. I, we try to do a new one every year because they tend to leak um, and people put their homework <laughs> on GitHub these days and I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's, we had at one point, that was really funny actually. We had at one point a student who was trying to get um, answers to the assignments from one of these you know, paid homework services. And the only right. reply was, we don't have anyone who knows how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty funny. Um, and the third assignment is usually something about um, C verification. So the course builds up about um, from, from, you know, complete basics to I can verify a little program in C. Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. It's, yeah. It, yeah, people seem to like it. Um, not everybody the same amount, but yeah. <laughs> so it has, I don't know, it, I think it has the, um, what do you call it? I think it counts as a not easy course. And I would agree it's, it's not easy. Um, and the assignments are not, you know, you don't want to leave them to the last minute because they do take a bit of time. Um, but it is, it does have the computer game aspect. And it also has a very like strange, um, it, it's not a bell curve in, in terms of marks. It tends to be bimodal in the sense that there are, there is a hump to, um, to I'm just passing and there's a hump at I'm, I have almost a hundred and out of a hundred and in that I think is because of the theorem program because you get immediate feedback if what you're doing is correct or not. And so if you're at the, I'm just passing um, hump, you, you know, you get some proofs going, but some proofs just not at all. And, and mm -hmm. you basically fail out those proofs. Um, but if you're in the, in the normal bell curve area where you would be sort of in the middle, um, you would get pushed to the top, I think, because right. the theorem program right. is going to tell you, um, you know, you mistyped here. This is not quite correct, which is something you would get fewer marks if you in a, in a pen and paper course, but which you can just go and correct. But and you would you wouldn't even know that it's not correct. Exactly. Yeah. And but but that is, I think, an effect that will um, cost some people more time. So that is part of why um, you don't want to leave the assignments towards the end because. If you make those yeah. mistakes, if you don't make them, you know, it just like ideally those the um, an assignment you can type in in probably one and a half hours if you just know what the proofs are and you just type them in. But of course, that's not that's never how it works. You find out what it is, and the the number of mistakes you make and how long it takes you to backtrack is 
determines the time. And that is, that's very real. That's, that's how all proofs work. That's how our proofs work as well. Right? It's, yeah. How do you see the future of software foundation specifically with interactive theorem provers? How do I see the future? Hard to see the future is, <laughs> you know, I would say. Um, I, so I think it, um, it is already spreading a lot more in industry. So I was talking about Apple using um, a form of verification. Um, they have a news item somewhere on their website about that. They, I know Amazon, AWS, um, they like, have a huge formal verification group. They're the vacuum cleaner of talent right now. If you want to hire people in formal verification, very hard to do. On the other hand, if you're a student and you want to make a lot of money and you're good in formal verification, you know, um, or if you think you like formal verification, do that. It can be extremely lucrative. <laughs> there is at least uh, one student from a student of mine, a PhD student, who works there now, she makes probably twice as much money as I do. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just, you know, after one postdoc and so on. I mean, she's also very good. But, um, I've had that um, experience actually many times. It was a um, student who um, started with Google. Um, he's not doing formal verification. He's more doing site uh, reliability and so on. But mm -hmm. he also just on his first day, was twice the professor salary I had. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, it's it's nice to see your students go there. Even sometimes you think, oh, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should go there. But <laughs> um, so I see that increasing. Um, there's there's always a hype cycle, but um, I think we're mostly in the AI hype cycle right now, and not in the formal methods hype cycle. Um, it's for for more critical things. I can see it increasing. I don't see people using formal verification for, I don't know, things like computer games or websites a lot. Even though, for websites and critical infrastructure, maybe people should. Um, but I would hope is that, especially infrastructure over time sees more of it, and sees more of it applied. So one of the things we're doing with SEL four is um, we have this piece of software and. I mean, the first verification project finished in 2009, and now it's 2023. And we've maintained and extended the verification since then that continuously. It's never not been verified, basically, since then. And I mean, by now, the size of the proof has increased dramatically. Like back then, it was about 200,000 lines, I think. Now it's like a good deal over a million. Um, and yeah, I mean that's just more, you know, more features, more architectures, more properties, more stuff. Everybody wants more. People never want less. <laughs> <laughs> like the best commits are, you know, removing a few thousand lines from the proof because, you know, you proved it a little bit nicer, <laughs> or you don't need it anymore or something. Um, so that's, I think, how I see it going. Um, more of it. For some areas, I think it is now cost effective. Um, in the sense that it is better for your bottom line to do formal verification than not. Like it's going to be uh, cheaper than doing testing um, to the same amount of assurance, um, at least. And it's going to be cheaper than failing. <laughs> um, so, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what, what Apple discusses internally, but I think that's probably what, um, 
what they're re realizing. Like they're applying it to sort of critical parts of, of their stack. I don't know exactly where it is yet, um, but if that wasn't worth it, I don't think a company like Apple would, would be doing it. And similarly, um, well, AWS is a more, uh, not sure what, what I should call the approach. It's, it's a broader approach, I would say. Um, like they're doing many different kinds of formal methods um, and some are extremely successful. They're, they're probably, it's probably kind of a portfolio approach where you know you try many things and some are extremely successful and pay off um, and pay for all the rest basically. Sort of, I don't know, VC startup kind of thing maybe. That's that's how VCs see startups. We do 10 of them and one has a 10 time <laughs> um, <laughs> return and the others fail. So then you're still fine, right? Get two with a 10 times return and you're pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, what about tools? What sort of tools would you like to see going into the future developed for you know formal methods to grow more? Tools is hard. Um, <laughs> I want many tools. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so it, it's dangerous to focus too much on tools, I think, in the sense that we're all people who like to build things and, and like shiny tools that make life easier. But yeah. I don't think tools is what made our project successful as such. I mean, there were like without a theorem prover, of course, it would not have happened. And we built a lot of tools, which made our life much better. But I, I don't think it was driven by the tools. So from that perspective, um, there's a whole bunch of things I want, but I don't know if, the, it will, if it will make the fundamental difference as such. Like for Isabel, for instance, I, I would want, I don't know. I don't actually know what I want. Usually more automation. Automation is good. And if you think of all the AI hype, um, give me a recommender system that would say, you know, people who saw this proof state have done this thing before and it has worked for them. Like everything I've seen so far for that for proofs has been pretty bad. Um, like GitHub Copilot, for instance, works reasonably well for, I don't know, Java and maybe some Python and so on. I tried it on Isabel, it was kind of catastrophically bad. But it also doesn't see the relevant information. It doesn't see the proof state, for instance. It just sees the rest of the proof text that you write. And like when when I do a proof, the only thing I look at is the proof state. So um, you know, there's a bunch of people out there who who are building systems that are trying to take that into account. So maybe we'll see something there. But I think I think it has some potential, and I think that would be um, a better application of AI than many others. Like I would feel a lot better about that, for instance, than um, AI trying to write my code. Because if you write a wrong proof, the prover will tell you, hey, the proof is wrong, it doesn't work. If you write wrong code, you just have wrong code <laughs> and you're gonna run it and it's gonna break. <laughs> and it looks right and it will run in, you know, it, it's like the worst case for formal verification. Code that looks right and works most of the time, but it's completely <laughs> broken in many ways. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't see good things coming there. but. Then again, job security. Hey, I should be I should be happy about this, but maybe I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> um, so there is that in in the Isabel direction. In more general and verification tools, um, 
I think static analysis has um, more to give, um, you know, lower um, false positive rate, I think would be great. Um, like in, in other projects, like I have an open source project, um, JFlex, that I come back to every once in a while. Um, I use a lot of static analysis tools on that and there is still way too much noise, I think there for Java, even, even tools like Infer, they're good, but there's more that could, that could be done, I think. And yeah, I'm not the person to do it, but I'm looking forward to the improvements in the field. <laughs> um, SMT could be a part of the whole static analysis thing where, you know, static analysis becomes more semantically uh, interesting and, and deeper basically. And I would see it more there than in actually doing more automated verification in terms of functional correctness, but I might be wrong. I, I don't know. Um, the whole SMT automation thing feeding into tools like Isabel, I can see that that would be cool. Um, more of that. And, and I think that is happening. There's many research projects around that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Program synthesis is interesting. Um, there's a whole bunch of work in, in um, proof engineering, proof repair and so on. Right. I think there is a bit of, um, how should I say? I think the AI angle on proof repair is probably a bit over, um, how should I phrase it? <laughs> over optimistic, but there are more things that you can Im do in proof repair than AI. Um, where, you know, it's more structural and, and, and sort of deeper and, and so on. Like uh, Talia's work, for instance, I think is pretty cool. Um, and sure, AI can help in, in, in sort of the heuristic side. I, I just don't think it's the magic bullet for all of these things. Like it seems to have trouble with anything that has a lot of structure and, and sort of deep logical content. It's better at, you know, write me a poem about how AI is not good at facts. <laughs> it's pretty good at that. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I am out of questions. I covered everything that I that I wanted to talk with you. Is there anything else you would like to, to talk about that we didn't? I don't think so. I think we covered a whole lot of stuff. It's been fun. It was really cool. I haven't, yeah, talked about that much formal method stuff for two hours in a row for you know, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's the thing. Like, that's that's the reason I I made the podcast is that we don't get both to talk about this for that long and both to listen as well. Just like just sit down, you know, like and, and have something to to listen and, and and the things that we that we love, right? So yeah, I hope people can get some enjoyment out of this as well. Um. I think one thing that I wanted to ask is that um, are you looking for hiring people for proof, Proofcraft or because I could I could leave some links for you or, or things like that? So that is an interesting question. We don't know yet. <laughs> it depends yeah. on how it develops. So we're not, um, um, how should I say, we're not the fast growing startup that, you know, wants mm -hmm. exponential growth and so on. We are kind of, and we're a services company uh, anyway, and we're in the, we don't take VC money and we want to slow, grow slowly and um, be sustainable and, you know, mostly have fun doing what we're doing uh, kind of thing. So we are very careful with hiring. Um, 
we will be applying for some big projects um, this year. And if they come through, then yes, there might be something, but it's a bit early to, um, you know, say yes or no on that. Awesome. Well, I think that was it then. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Gerwin. This was a, a, a lovely conversation. It was really nice to talk with you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And yeah, it was really cool. Thanks. Well, that was it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did recording. Garen was such a nice guest. This work they've been doing with SCL4 is just amazing. It's mind-blowing to me that people can actually do things so big with, with formal verification. It's a lot, a lot of work. If you guys have any questions about this, leave them as a comment in our website, typetheorforall.com. You also can send us an email typetheoryforall at gmail.com and if you are enjoying this show so far please consider contributing something in our Ko-Fi platform, you can find the links in our website in the bottom left it's very hard to miss it and I would greatly greatly appreciate any contribution, come on, five bucks, a coffee also don't forget to follow us on Twitter, I've been posting some more memes now quality memes in, in type theory and related stuff. So you wanna you wanna check that out. In any case, I hope to see you guys next time. <laughs>